This is a podcast extra on rheumatic disorders. This is actually a video PowerPoint that I used to have the class do. Um, you have some self-learning modules now that kind of take their place, but um, this is just some good extra information. It has more information about osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, lupus, etc. So here you go. Osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, gout, a little bit of lupus, a little bit of scleroderma. Uh, so you'll get a good picture of some of these different rheumatic diseases. We'll talk about treatments and nursing interventions. So um, arthritis actually consists of over 100 rheumatic disorders. And pain is usually the symptom that brings people in. They may also have swelling, stiffness, um, difficulty with uh, range of motion, decreased range of motion. Hmm. Okay, so now we're going to go into osteoarthritis, is what we're going to start with. So that is a chronic, non-inflammatory progressive disorder that causes cartilage deterioration in the joints. Okay, so risk factors for this, um, it generally happens, it's, this is generally called the wear and tear disease. Okay, so it's gonna happen as people get older. And if they've been uh, very active and athletic, it may come on at a younger age. <clears throat> um, this is also known as degenerative joint disease. It's the most common form of joint disease seen in the knee, hip, and spine, uh, mostly in, in the weight-bearing joints. So it is a chronic non-inflammatory progressive disorder that causes deterioration of the cartilage. So non-inflammatory is a key here because we're going to talk about rheumatoid arthritis, which is inflammatory. So um, inflammation is not characteristic, but it can occur later, like as it, as it gets, um, you know, progressed, as it progresses. So increased use is going to cause problems. So if someone plays football or soccer, or they do things where they're pivoting and jumping, like basketball, and twisting, making quick stops, uh, kneeling, stooping, so jobs where you have to do that kind of stuff too uh, can lead to, uh, it can be a risk factor. So nurses, you're at risk. And obesity is also a risk factor and this is modifiable. Obesity is always a modifiable risk factor. So these people are gonna be asked to lose weight. So there is no single cause that's been identified, um, but obesity is a risk factor as well as reduced estrogen and other genetic things. But uh, Overuse is uh, extreme overuse for, from athletics and things like that is a big risk factor as well. But what, that's why we say regular moderate exercise decreases the risks. That just kind of keeps people in line and shape. So here is a picture of the pathophysiology. So looking at uh, picture A here. This is normal anatomy. So note we have the space here between the bone. It's maintained by this cartilage. Okay, the blue part is cartilage. So over time, the cartilage gets eroded. It starts splitting and then it chips off. The joint space then gets narrowed. See, because the, the um, cartilage is not forming a cushion like it did before. And then eventually we have loss of cartilage and the bone articulates with the bone. And this is where you'll always hear people say when they had their knee replaced that it was bone on bone. They could, they could feel the bone on bone grating. And that's, I'm sure, a horrible feeling. So um, the, it jumped ahead without me telling it to. The, uh, after it gets bone on bone, then we get these outgrowths of bone, these osteophytes. Okay, and that would be uh, down here, these little bulges. Okay, and also the synovial sac is gonna get inflamed and get bigger. And that is where inflammation comes from down the road. So as we said, it is classified as a non-inflammatory disease, but inflammation can occur uh, when it gets really bad. So joint pain is gonna be their predominant symptom. Like I said, that's what's gonna bring them in. And it can range from mild discomfort to a real disability where they're unable to walk without an aid. Pain is gonna get worse with joint use. So when it's early, they can just rest and it'll end up going away. But when it's later, 
um, the rest isn't going to help it, sleep isn't going to help it. In fact, they'll have trouble sleeping because the pain um, is getting in the way. Also, uh, barometric pressure, as that goes down, uh, the pain can increase. So you might hear people say that rain or humidity makes their knees hurt, and that is why it became, the pain becomes worse as barometric pressure decreases. Now, this can be unilateral or asymmetrical. Uh, so that is different from rheumatoid arthritis, which we'll get to in a little bit. So unilateral means it's only on one side. It could certainly be both sides as well, like somebody can have their left knee damaged and their right knee damaged also from an activity, um, but they are not related, okay? So it is a unilateral disease. Um, when we have overactivity, uh, that leads to an increase in the intraarticular fluid, and that's known as effusion. And this is especially seen in the knees. And that leads to an increase in the stiffness. So this just shows some of the joints that are most affected. And again, with osteo, we generally think of that in the larger joints, the weight-bearing joints. So the spine, hips, and knees especially. But it can be anywhere also. So Heberden's and Bouchard's nodes, um, those are the uh, bulges that you'll see when we have the picture of the joint there, the little outcroppings of, of the bone, and it can lead to a visible disfigurement. And that can cause the patient to be distressed. They can um, you know, have, a, have an image problem. Uh, it doesn't really cause much loss of function, but it, it does kind of take up some of the joint space, and this occurs especially in fingers and the smaller joints. So some diagnostic studies, um, they can do different kinds of scans. So we can do a bone scan, CT, MRI, and these are to detect joint changes. So they would want to um, look at this early on and then they can use that as a baseline and then compare it later because it's more useful uh, to monitor the progression or the response to therapy. Okay, so they, they take it now at the onset and then you come back in six months, it's still not better, and they'll take another picture and then they can compare them. So once it's progressed, in, in progressed osteoarthritis, it's gonna detect the joint space narrowing. So they're gonna see um, the, the bone on bone action. They're gonna not see the cartilage in there. So they're gonna see how, how badly it's progressed. Um, some lab tests, whoops, keeps jumping ahead. Lab tests, um, ESR and CRP are usually normal. Uh, those are non-specific tests anyway, uh, but they can help rule out other things. They also might check the synovial fluid and that will differentiate away from RA by what they find in there. So how do we manage it? Um, well, we want them to rest when they need to. We want them to lose weight if they are overweight. Um, that's going to be the first intervention that, that a doctor is going to recommend is that they lose some weight and try to take the stress off of those joints. And in fact, some surgeons won't operate on the patient if they are obese. Uh, they, they want them to get down to a more manageable level before they go in there and try to fix the, the joints because they know that it's not going to, uh, you know, it's not going to hold up if they they don't lose the weight. So they may um, also use heat. Uh, heat's going to be more often used than ice, um, but ice is appropriate when we have acute inflammation. And then with medications, NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors, um, those will be used in conjunction with the non-pharmacologic like the uh, heat or ice and, and rest and then eventually may lead to reconstructive surgery or arthroplasty, so that's our total knees and our total hips that we see. Corticosteroids may also be used. Um, they have, there's a lot of issues with steroids, though, that we've probably already talked about and will continue to talk about. Um, the immunosuppressing action of them and the, um, the sugar, blood sugar raises. So resting and protecting, the patient has to understand the importance of this as well as losing weight. 
if we do have to rest it and stabilize it, it should be maintained, the joint should be maintained in a normal functional position. Okay, so we don't want to put somebody into a, um, a brace or a splint that's going to have the joint be in an, in an awkward condition, position. Uh, and we don't want it to be immobilized for any more than a week. Uh, heat and cold again, I mentioned that. So heat's going to be more effective except when it's acute. They also may do um, paraffin wax baths. Like if it's in the hands, they can have them dip their hands in, in the wax. Um, that feels really nice. Some other alternative therapies, acupuncture, yoga, massage, all those things. Glucosamine is uh, something, it's a supplement that you can get. Um, it is, it's kind of controversial whether it helps or not. Uh, I took it myself for a, a while and I, I felt like it wasn't, I felt like I was getting worse without um, any benefit of it. So I stopped and that was after like a year of using it. So I gave it a chance. Uh, and then again, diet to reduce the weight. So drugs, so it's gonna depend on the severity. Um, first thing we'll always start out with is Tylenol because that's you know over the counter and mild. Um, does have liver side effects, but in general, Tylenol is okay for everybody. And we'll give them the extra strength Tylenol, so that's a thousand milligrams, and that should be given every eight hours. Now you may see in your book or elsewhere that it could be every six hours. And uh, the, the Tylenol debate, I think we already talked about, but uh, it, it used to say 4,000 a day was okay, and now they're going down to 3,000. So if you were to take 1,000 milligrams every six hours, that would put you at 4,000. And if you take 1,000 milligrams every eight hours, you're only at 3,000. So we want to start really thinking in that direction and reducing the amount of Tylenol that people are taking. Okay, they may also use some topical agents. There's um, Aspercream is, a, is an aspirin-based rub. It's a salicylate. And then Capsaicin, um, this is a cream that is made from capsicum, which is uh, derived from a pepper, hot pepper. It's very hot. It, it, it uh, warms up the, uh, the area that you put it on. And it kind of feels good. It can help. And then hyaluronic acid is another thing. Um, when it gets to be moderate to severe, then we'll go up to NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, and they may put somebody on doxycycline, and that helps reduce uh, the cartilage loss. So whenever we are have someone taking these medications, um, any medications really, but especially Tylenol that's liver toxic or those that are uh, kidney toxic, like NSAIDs, we want to make sure that people are drinking a lot of water. Okay, so at least 2,000 milliliters a day to help flush the system. All right, here's a question. A patient with newly diagnosed OA would be initially encouraged to use which of the following medications in the management of the disease? So which one of those are we gonna choose first? Just talked about it. Okay, right, Tylenol. And I did change, I did put this uh, to be 3,000 a day because I want you to start thinking that way. Next, we're going to move on to gout. So gout is a defect related to purine metabolism. And purine is, is what some proteins break down into, and that our body has trouble um, flushing, flushing it out, and it, and it builds up. Okay, So it, it, it ends up with uric acid crystals. So hyperuricemia means that uric acid is elevated in the blood. There are four phases of gout. You don't have to know the specifics of the four phases. You can read about them, but um, just get the general idea of what gout is. Okay, um, It's more common in men than women. In fact, it's about 90% in men. Its incidence is pretty rare, but it has been on the rise in the last uh, decade or so. So we have either uh, primary or secondary gout, and it's if it's primary, it's often inherited. So it can be an overproduction of uric acid or else under secretion 
by the kidneys. So we're either making too much or we're not getting rid of enough. So let's take a look at the diagram here, the spiral of gout. Okay, so the attack starts here and we get these crystals that form. Then the white blood cells attack them because they're foreign, they shouldn't be there. The crystals pop the white blood cells, which release proteins. And remember what caused the problem in the first place is proteins, or purine. So then these proteins that are out there, they call in more white blood cells, which causes inflammation and pain. Proteins break down into acids, so that's going to lower your pH, and that makes it possible for more crystals to form. And then we start the cycle again. So that's the spiral of gout. So it just kind of continues to get worse unless there's an intervention. Okay, so again, we're either making too much or we're having trouble getting rid of it. If it's secondary, it's going to be related to other diseases that lead to the same thing. It leads to you either making too much or not excreting enough, or both. And some diseases that are that cause that, um, DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, severe diets, starvation diets, metabolic syndrome. There's others in the book you can take a look at. Um, when it says severe diets and starvation, um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember, but there was a big diet craze about 15 years ago called the Atkins diet, where all you could eat was protein, no carbs. Like nobody was eating any any carbs at all. And uh, they, you have to have carbs to maintain brain function. And, and people were really getting, uh, they were losing weight, but they were damaging their body. And that has led to an increase in gout diagnoses because of all the proteins that they were eating. It breaks down and then they have hyperuricemia. So um, the attacks that come on are related to the sudden increase or decrease of uric acid levers, levels, uric acid levels. So when it's acute, it usually occurs in one or more joints, and it's generally thought of as the big toe disease. So when someone has pain in their uh, mid-metatarsal area or, or in their great toe, uh, the first thing someone's going to think of is that it is gout. Okay, So that's an acute problem. If it is um, chronic, there's going to be multiple joints involved, and they're going to have what's called tophi or tophi, and those are clusters of crystals. The serum uric acid levels, um, this is something that also is not real um, definitive or specific, but um, six milligrams per deciliter is the goal of, of therapy. Once they put people on meds, they want to keep it under six. Um, there are meds that, that we're going to talk about that you can see on page 1059. There's a chart about the meds, so let's get into that. So in an acute phase, we're going to go for NSAIDs and colchicine. So we want to manage these acute flare-ups. And then there's also going to be long-term management to prevent the flare-ups and also control the hyperuricemia. So the NSAIDs we're going to use are ibuprofen, and endomethacin, and then also colchicine. And then if we're not responding to that, to the NSAIDs and colchicine, and the, those can be used in uh, conjunction with each other, then they're gonna go to corticosteroids. Okay, and what do we know about corticosteroids? A lot of things, remember, keep those, keep those always in mind. Whenever you see corticosteroids, you wanna think that the blood sugar's going up and the immune system's going down, and also, how do we stop them? taper them off, right? So long-term management, we're going to give them a xanathine oxidase inhibitor, which is known as allopurinol. So whenever you, uh, whenever someone hears allopurinol, you think gout. That's, that's, a, that's a gout drug. Uh, it's the drug of choice for preventing attacks and TOFI formation. And xyloprim uh, is another name for it, but you'll probably always just hear it as allopurinol. And then there's uricosuric acids, agents, uricosuric agents, like probenicid, which is also called Benamid, I've seen both of those names, and sulfonpyrazone, or anturane. So Benamid controls the hyperuricemia. It dissolves the urate, and it causes dissolution from the joints, so the crystals break up and get detached from the joints, so that helps. Anturane is similar, but more potent. Um, it has some blood damaging properties, so we want to use that with caution, okay? Now, so these these two, dang it, it keeps slipping ahead. Um, 
So the long-term management, the um, allopurinol helps prevent the attacks in the topi formation, but it doesn't really fix the problem. The uricosuric agents do. Okay, so they correct the hyperuricemia and they dissolve that urate. And we also want them to limit the use of alcohol. We gotta have some diet changes. We're gonna uh, decrease the purines that we take in. So we're gonna limit consumption of foods with purine. And it, just the easiest way to think of that is just limit protein um, from meats. So organ meats, meats is spelled wrong, uh, shellfish, and um, what else? Well, beer and wine. Um, we also want them to drink two liters of water per day again, and that's to flush things out. So not only flushing the drugs out that they're taking, but to help um, keep the blood more flushed and motile so that the crystals don't uh, form and build up. And next is fibromyalgia. And this is something that's um, very nonspecific. It's really hard to diagnose. It affects women more than men with a ratio of 8 to 1. And there are 18 points on the body that are tender, that are specific to fibromyalgia, or when they, when they find that a person is having trouble with those 18 areas, with 11 of those 18 areas, then they can consider it fibromyalgia. And those are seen on page 1059. So they are gonna have sleep disturbances and mood disturbances. They have a burning pain, but they can't really nail it down. So you ask them, is it a muscle, is it a joint, is it the tissue? And they don't know, they can't really specify, and they may get uh, upset and irritable about it. So our treatment for this, we want to help them increase their independence. We wanna encourage them to keep their social obligations, um, work out, be active, help to increase the strength and the function that they have, and then medications that we're going to give them, um, NSAIDs we'll start with, and then tramadol, which is an opiate that has been shown to be effective with fibromyalgia. Now there's some off-label uses of some other drugs, and off-label means that they that's not what they're prescribed for, okay, and they may not even be approved for that, but it has been found to work, so doctors can will prescribe it. So these are all um, antidepressants and anti-anxieties, except for Lyrica, uh, which helps deal with um, neuropathy and restless leg syndrome. Cymbalta, Prozac, Paxil, among others that are in your book, those are all antidepressants. Um, and they will help with the sleep disturbances, the mood disturbances, and um, it can, you know, if, if some, sometimes the antidepressants can help with, with pain also and then the nursing care that we talked about, just encourage them to stay up with life and stay active. And next is rheumatoid arthritis. You know, it's really important that you differentiate between rheumatoid and osteo. And I'm gonna make some points that are gonna make that clear. And then next time we're in class, I'm gonna draw a diagram that'll help um, kind of cement it. I, I wasn't able to put it into the PowerPoint. It was becoming too uh, time consuming and difficult. So this is the most common inflammatory arthritic disorder. We said that osteo was the most common non-inflammatory. This affects females more than males at a ratio of either two to one or three to one. They say it kind of varies. And it's an autoimmune reaction, mainly occurs in the synovium, so in the joint area. So it is a systemic autoimmune disease, and that's important to note too, that it is systemic. Okay, so it affects the synovial tissues, the joint areas, but it also has effects in other parts of the body that we'll get to. Um, now, it normally begins in small joints, like the fingers, but it can later lead to larger ones. And with osteo, we said it was kind of just the opposite, right? It starts in the larger weight-bearing joints and it can move to the smaller ones. Now, RA is usually bilateral and symmetrical, and that's important to note, too. And we said osteo is kind of a wear and tear, so it happens, um, you know, it could just happen to one knee that you fell on a couple of times so over the years and it got damaged. Um, but rheumatoid is going to be bilateral and symmetrical, so it's going to affect both sides of the body at the same time, 
and roughly in the same manner. Now, uh, upon palpation, if we touch these people's bones, uh, the, the, the um, joints rather, where it's bulging out, it's gonna feel spongy or boggy, and there may be fluid in there that they may aspirate. So they're gonna have joint pain, swelling, redness, and a decrease in function, and that's what's gonna be most upsetting to them. It also does involve some extra articular symptoms um, outside of the joint area, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the cause of RA is unknown, and there's really no, no infectious agent that's been found, but this diagram kind of shows how it gets inflamed. Looks kind of ugly. So when it is involved only in the articular area, we're gonna have pain, stiffness, limited range of motion, inflammation. And again, the symptoms occur symmetrically, that's important to note starting at the small joints, sometimes going to the larger ones. So here's some typical deformities. I've got a few other pictures within the PowerPoint that you can see, but it just looks like the fingers are going the wrong way. They, they get kind of uh, nodular and crooked and painful looking. Here's a chart you can take a look at that just kind of encapsulates it. You can go back to that. So when they withdraw synovial fluid, they're gonna find greater than 20,000, and it's gonna be mostly neutrophils. Okay. Um, the RF factor under laboratory findings. This is present in 70 to 80% of people, but it's not a definitive uh, diagnosis again. And also the uh, ESR and CRP are going to indicate that there's acute inflammation, but that, again, they're going to be increased, but that, again, doesn't really serve as a diagnosis. That just means that there's inflammation somewhere in the body. So those are really nonspecific labs. Uh, when they pull the synovial fluid, it's going to be straw-like, so kind of yellowish, and there'll be fibrin strands and high, wood blood, high white blood cells. So some extra articular features, um, they may have fever, weight loss, fatigue, lymph node swelling, and then these are some things here that um, affect other parts of the body that you really wouldn't think of as having to do with you know, rheumatoid or the joints. So cataracts can develop, they may get skin ulcers that are like pressure ulcers. Uh, vocal cords can be affected and that's gonna lead to hoarseness. Then they can have some cardiopulmonary effects pleurisy, pleural effusion, pericarditis, and carpal tunnel syndrome in the wrists. Sjogren's syndrome, uh, this is where we get dry. So there's a, a decreased salivation and decreased tear forming. <clears throat> They're gonna complain of burning and itchy eyes. Felty syndrome is something else that occurs with uh, when there's severe nodulars nodules, nodules, so inflammatory eye problems, lung problems, and blood problems. So what do we do? Our primary goals are going to be to decrease the inflammation and pain, help them preserve their joint function, and prevent or correct any joint deformity. And that's probably going to be kind of difficult because it's probably already happening and you know that, that's probably what's bringing them in unless it's detected very, very early and then we're going to talk about the drugs in a minute we want them to rest protect the joints uh, tell them about hot and cold applications they can do exercises they can do to help preserve the range of motion and we also have to involve the family in these teachings so these are um, some things you're going to assess for tips to relieve their pain and fatigue, help them eat well, get sleep, increase their mobility, maintain their self-care. Now, if you have hands that look like that, do you think you're going to be able to do a whole lot of your own self-care? No, not when it gets, uh, you know, to a certain point. So that's why we want to try to prevent them from getting as bad as, as this picture shows. We also want them to have an improved body image, not be ashamed or embarrassed of their hands, help them to cope. 
Okay, and then medications, when we do have to treat them with medications, we can talk about that. So first is gonna be NSAIDs and salicylates. So those are gonna have anti-inflammatory and pain relief properties, and that's what they need. Uh, second generation NSAID is a COX-2 inhibitor. Uh, those don't have GI side effects like uh, bleeding, so those, those can be good for people that are prone to GI problems. Um, however, these do not fix the problem. They treat the symptoms, which is very often the case in medicine, right? It treats the symptoms, but it doesn't, it doesn't fix the causing problem. So something that will help fix that is gonna be disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, or DMARDs. So DMARDs, um, one of them, a popular one is methotrexate. That's the drug of choice, and it's fast-acting, so that's good doesn't have to take time for it to build up in the system. However, it does have a black box warning, so be aware of that. Take a look in the book and read up on all the warnings. It has several, and especially it's not to be given to pregnant women. It is teratogenic, so uh, read up on methotrexate. Ugh, dang thing. We're gonna see methotrexate again in some other classes. It's used for some other things as well. Um, then next, biologic agents. Um, some ones you may have heard of would be Embril, Remicade, Humira. Those are some common ones you may have seen the commercials or heard about them somewhere. Now these are uh, immunosuppressants. So what do we know about that? They're gonna lead to infections. It reduces the immune system. So we gotta watch out for that. And then also, um, oh, I skipped it, it was up there, corticosteroids, glucocorticosteroids. Those are gonna be given in flare-ups to help um, decrease inflammation and pain, but also they can be used to bridge while we're waiting for a slower DMARD to work. And I said the methotrexate is a fast-acting DMARD, but there are others that are much slower. So in the meantime, we wanna give them some glucocorticoids to um, help relieve the pain and swelling. And glucocorticoids, side effects, osteoporosis, diabetes, infection, all those things. So remember, always think of those of side effects with corticosteroids, and we want to taper them off. And then lastly, antidepressants. Um, you think they're going to be a little depressed if their hands are getting all gnarly and funky? Yeah, probably. They also may have some sleep disturbances because of the pain, so antidepressants are going to help with the sleep and the mood. All right, question, which of the following nursing diagnoses is most likely to be a priority in the care of a patient with rheumatoid arthritis? Take a look, what do you think? Impaired physical mobility. Okay, people are gonna have some degree of immobility. Um, like I said, with the hands being all gnarly, that's, you know, it doesn't really affect your walking around, the hands, but it's gonna affect your mobility in terms of being able to care for yourself. The, um, it also can, you know, can affect the feet or the knees, so that would, that would, mm, that would lead to the type of impaired mobility that you normally think of. Um, they're not necessarily prone to falls or isolation or anything like that. Um, another one that wasn't on the choices, but um, self-image would have been another diagnosis. Okay, heat and cold therapy. Um, ice, when, it's, when it gets really bad, we don't want to have ice on for more than 10 or 15 minutes. And it's really important to teach people because they can leave it on there and the hand starts feeling numb and then it feels kind of good because it's numb and so they just leave it on because they like that feeling and then next thing you know they got tissue damage so make sure you stress that and then with heat moist heat is going to be best and heat shouldn't be on for more than 20 minutes and we also need to teach patients about that that we don't want to have them um, go to bed with a heating pad for example nor do we want them to put on some kind of heat-producing cream like a Bengay or Tiger Balm or um, the Capsaicin. We don't want them to use that and then use an external heat device like a heating pad or an electric blanket because that's going to um, end up getting too hot and that can cause some tissue damage as well. So heat can help relieve the stiffness, which um, will help them to take a more active part in their, in their therapy, doing their exercises and stuff. So um, inadequate joint movement can cause some immobility problems and muscle weakness, right? If we don't use it, we're gonna lose it. And so they're not gonna want to 
be doing their exercises and moving around much when they're all swollen and painful, but that we need to understand and help them understand that that's just going to make things worse. And then also, over-aggressive exercise can result in increased pain. Um, that makes sense, right? When you use your joints too much, you get tired. So we want to do gentle range of motion exercises daily to help keep them functional. Is the following statement true or false? A diet that is intended to manage a rheumatic disorder should prioritize simple carbohydrates and animal-based proteins. What do you think? That's false. You won't find too many diets that tell you to eat animal-based proteins because we know that those are risk factors for so many other things. So uh, we want their diet to come from whole grains, fresh fruits and vegetables, legumes, seeds, and nuts. So no simple sugars and animal-based proteins in moderation. Um, then next is lupus, and we're just going to touch very briefly on this. Uh, lupus is another inflammatory autoimmune disease. has variable presentation, so it, it can look very different from person to person. They also have remissions and exacerbations. What's the big cardinal sign of lupus that we can identify on someone's face? If you don't know, make sure that you read the chapter about it. So, um, they have a lot of problems. So, fatigue, many different pains. Uh, so, it kind of sounds similar to fibromyalgia because they're going to have muscle pains and joint pains and they're going to be tired and, you know, just not feeling very good, kind of general malaise. Uh, the diagnosis is going to be made after taking a complete history and physical, and there'll be some diagnostic tests. They will be getting multiple medications for treatment, um, particularly corticosteroids. Then scleroderma is another um, problem here. This this is kind of an interesting interesting one. Um, it often starts insidiously with the Raynaud's phenomenon, and Raynaud's it happens mostly in women to the fingers and it what happens is um, cold or stress can lead to vasospasms and then that turns the fingers they can go red and white and blue and then they can eventually end up kind of getting crunchy and falling off after a while if it's not treated so cold and stress brings it on so often scleroderma results after uh, Renaud's has come on. Renaud's can also occur with um, RA as well, so read up on that a little bit. Um, so when they get sclero scleroderma, um, the skin gets hard and firm. Um, when I was younger, I knew a lady, Mrs. Kennedy, who had this in her arm, and she was telling me about it, and I, she, you know, let me touch it, and it felt like her arm was just so like swollen like you know when someone has really severe edema and it's the skin is very taut um, but you could touch it and it didn't give at all it was very hard so it was like it was all this fluid or something underneath the skin but it was hard it wasn't you know squishy like like fluid would be so uh, the skin gets dry uh, the sweat glands get suppressed so we don't have sweat or oil coming out so the skin is dry, the extremity is going to stiffen and lose mobility, and it spreads slowly. So for many years it could end up being in the hands or the feet, uh, but then eventually it's going, it can spread. If it gets into the face, the face is going to be immobile, um, kind of mask-like and expressionless, um, like a real housewife who's had too much Botox, um, but it also is very firm and rigid, so it's not a good thing. Um, so the vascular injury and damage, that is the first thing, and that's what Renaud's is. And then there are two different arms of the immune system, the innate and adaptive, and those both kick in, so it's autoimmune, innate and adaptive autoimmunity. And then we get the generalized interstitial and vascular fibrosis. Okay, and that's where just everything gets hard. And as it spreads throughout the body, uh, although not visible, there can be some things inside that are, you know, very dangerous, like the left ventricle of the heart, 
uh, it's going to lead to heart failure. If the esophagus gets affected, you're going to have trouble swallowing. If the lungs are involved, trouble breathing. So all, all of these things, it's not just on the outside. So all of these things can occur and it can lead to death eventually. And there's a little joke for you. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time on, on fibromyalgia, lupus, and scleroderma, uh, but you should read them. It's only a couple of pages each, so be familiar with those. And most of this chapter has been concentrated on osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, so I really want you to know about those and know the differences of them. When we get into ortho in the next class, we're going to start talking about joint replacements, and those are going to be results of which of those two kinds of arthritis. And a lot of our patients are going to be uh, in for those uh, joint replacements in clinical. So be aware of what's going on. All right, now go and take the quiz.